Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Yakir Englander, your host today. For many decades, questions, theologian questions are part of my life. As someone who grew up in the ultra-Orthodox Hasidic community in Israel, God was walking with me from the day that I remember myself. As I fall in love with God and as I wanted to be part of the narrative and the life of the divine, the divine image became smaller and smaller until it disappeared one day. This is one question of many that are working with me, and I have the privilege to host today Professor Jack Caputo. Jack, you are a theologian, but also as a philosopher. It means for me that your way of thinking is not as a philosopher of theology, but also as a theologian. Many of your works focus on continental philosophy, on Jacques Derrida, but also on Heidegger and Kierkegaard. You wrote many books, as I will mention just two of them, that I was learning in Israel. One is The Prayers and Tears of Jacques Derrida, and the second is After the Death of God. Today, we are going to speak and share and learn about your book, Hoping Against Hope, Confessions of a Postmodern Pilgrim, that was, um, it was published by the Fortress uh, Press. In this book, there are many elements of autobiography among different parts of your personality that are asking and debating about theologian questions. Before we will dive into these subjects, I wonder if you can um, open by sharing with us a little bit about your choice in this book to let us go beyond the image of a professor of theology or a theologian who is also a professor and to go into your personal life. Why did you choose to write this book? And also, if you can share with us a little bit about the different images, we have Jackie, we have Brother Paul, but we have also the professor. Welcome, and thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you so much, Javier, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here and uh, to hear a little bit about your own story. Not, not, not completely unlike my story. Um, well, p- part of the reason the book took an autobiographical is I'm retired, uh, and one of the things I did when I retired was I decided to expand uh, my writing to a wider public and to try to reach uh, non-academics, non-specialists, non uh, to write non-technically. So I thought, plus as you get to be a certain age, and you will find yourself doing this, I, I predict, when you you start to be to become uh, your reflection becomes retrospective and you start thinking back on your past and uh, so 
I know so many people who are not professional writers and they weren't academics, but who are my age, who are writing bi biographies. You know, they, they don't mean to publish them. They don't mean they want them for their children and for the family and for themselves. They want to tell themselves their own story. So it's, it's partly a function of my age, partly a function of being a retired academic. But but. As much as uh, just e equally a, a, an attempt to try to get to, to say what I'm doing, to, to talk about my work in a way that can be understood more broadly. And the autobiographical uh, twist was to help engage the reader in in the in the philosophy in the theology. Now it's an interesting thing. When I submitted it, it was it was just a sort of light touch in the book. The book was mostly, you know, the stuff, you know, the, the philosophy, the theology, the questions, the analyses, the figures. But the editors at Fortress loved the autobiography, and so they made me throw out large amounts of the theory and fill it in with more autobiography. So I had to do a, a pretty extensive rewrite, and I had a, an editor who was really pushing me about that. Um, and it ended up being a different book, because what my hunch was that this would be sort of interesting if I added something autobiographical, and, and the editor seized on it. And they said, no, 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 we want the whole thing to be framed by the autobiography. So it was partly my doing, but part, partly their doing. And um, I uh, one time was team, team teaching a course with a fellow who was a theological psychotherapist. And he's a good, very dear friend of mine. And so we started this course uh, with a seminar with about 10, 15 students. And uh, he started by saying, I want everyone to say something about their name. And I thought, oh, my God. Here, this is supposed to be a philosophy course, and we're starting with all this touchy-feely stuff. <laughs> and I'm going to die. Somebody make me disappear so I can get out of this room. And so we go around, and it was interesting. Each of the students had something to say about their name. And so then he said to me, Jack, you know, uh, my name in print is John D. Caputo. But he said to me, Jack, how about you? And I didn't see that coming because I thought this was for the students. It was a way to break the ice to get the semester going. And I answered them. You know, I had never actually thought about it. And you, just before this broadcast began, said, should I address you as John or Jack? And what about these names in this book? And I discovered, actually, I can almost tell the whole story of my life by reflecting on my name. Because everybody who knew me when I was growing everybody who knows me personally, and when I was growing up in, uh, in, in the neighborhood, you know, in southwest Philadelphia, I was Jack or Jackie. And young, when I was a little kid, I was Jackie. And John was a, f a very formal name, and it was the name that the my uh, nuns in class used to call me, John. So the name John had a sort of ominous tone to me, whereas Jack was my name. And 
then, you know, at a certain point after I graduated high school, I entered a religious life. I became a, a Christian brother, De La Salle brother, and I took the name Brother Paul because there was a brother, Paul, who taught me in high school, who was a very important part of my life. So I now had another name, Brother Paul. And uh, then I got my PhD, and I began teaching, and I, all of a sudden, I'm professor. So, you know, your, your name, I mean, I don't know if you've ever thought about your name, but your name actually is, is significant. And so I thought, well, I'm going to frame this autobiography around the, the, the names uh, that I've used at different points in my life. And then it turned out, and this was, this was a remarkable thing. You mentioned the book, The Prayers and Tears of Jacques Derrida. Well, it turns out that his name is not Jacques. His name, his name is Jacqui, and this is really very interesting. The, the Sephardic French-speaking Jews in Algeria had a thing back in the 30s of naming their kids after American movie stars. So Jacques Derrida is Jackie. Derrida, that's the name that was on his passport. And J-A-C-K-I-E is the way he spelled it. Because the C-Q would have been a woman's name. And he was named after uh, an American movie star named Jackie Coogan, who was a child movie star back in the silent movie days. So it turns out that Jacques Derrida's name is the same as my name, Jackie. And I thought that is just glorious. It's just absolutely glorious. And so there was, uh, you know, a whole other level of play that I could engage in in the book about the two Jackies. So that's actually, you know, I, I can almost tell, say everything <laughs> by going back to my name. I love it so much, Jack, because um, first of all, it's so interesting, you know, um, for many years I was running um, a youth movement in Jerusalem for Muslim, Christian and Jewish kids which um, and youth, which called Kids for Peace. And one of the first things that we did when we met together, um, all, like we had um, youth from Jerusalem and then in summer camps, we would bring them to North America where they met with North American kids. And one of the first um, things that we are doing is to share the name and also the story behind the name. And in Jerusalem, everyone knows why their name is their name and what's the meaning of the name. And if they have two names, like I'm Yakir, but I'm also a Yaakov, Jacob. And I know exactly after which rabbi was Yakir and which rabbi was Jacob. And which part, how it's influenced my personality in a way. And I'm working with that from age zero. And it's true for many also secular Israelis and American and, and uh, sorry, and Palestinians. But the American kids many times didn't know why they're called after like the name that they're called. That's right. Yeah. They didn't yeah. Think about it. 
Yes. So, but but also it's um, it's fascinating for me because one of the questions about the divine, at least in the Jewish theology, and I will speak only from the Jewish theology, is the names of the divine, right? So, do we when the Torah call um, God El, which is a power, or when God, when God is called um, Bala Rachamim, the one with the mercy, um, or Bat calls the feminine divine. Um, so it brings different elements of the divine. Um, and this led me to, uh, maybe we will jump now into the, the book itself and the questions of, that you bring. So one of the um, crises in the postmodern time that you're speaking about religion is the ability to know truthly, like to know truth, to, or even to know. Um, you speak about, um, and, and many postmodern and deconstruction um, um, philosophers speak about the ability of our language to capture. And what do we capture when we say words as God, as religion? Um, and, and you, in a way, you, you demand to look on the God beyond the words that religion gave to God. And I wonder if you can lead us to people who are not professional in um, in in um, in philosophy or in postmodern philosophy and deconstruction, can you lead us a little bit in this um, crisis, and also how this crisis um, touched your personal journey as Jack or Jackie and as father um, as their brother Paul? Well, uh, a lot of the um, it, a lot of the, the the contemporary what we call postmodern philosophers, although that. That movement now is actually beginning to subside a little bit, and there are there are other you know, philosophers. Philosophical movements last so long, and then they move on. So, postmodern is actually a little bit uh, becoming a little bit of an historical term for something that's pretty much is almost over. Um, a lot of them were quite interested in language. And there was a burst of linguistic studies in the 20th century that established modern linguistics. And we discovered the, the way we usually think about words, is, the way we used to think about words before modern linguistic science was we thought of pre-constituted thoughts, which we then gave a word to. And, you know, I mean, that, that's neither psychologically nor philosophically the best way to think about words. Uh, words actually, uh, our, our thoughts are very deeply embedded in words, and it's extremely difficult to, to uh, I don't know that you can think without words. I think when you silently meditate, you're talking to yourself, or you're talking to God, or you're, you're, you're articulating. And so, uh, things that are inside of us are being uh, shaped and formed, not just expressed, but they're really being constituted and uh, coming together as we speak. As a teacher, I, I, dis I, I very quickly learned that I did not understand anything. I wasn't confident that I understood anything until I gave a class on it, until I taught it. And I would prepare and prepare and prepare. And um, when I got it, and I was always afraid, young teachers are always afraid they don't have enough to say, they're going to run out of time, they're going to run out of things to say, and it'll still be 10 more minutes. And um, I would discover when I got in class, I could never get through what I had prepared. 
And that's because it was, I was articulating it. It was all starting to come together and take body and shape and form for me. So our language gives birth to our thought. It doesn't just express it. Now, when you get to, uh, I mean, almost, I think this is true throughout the length and breadth of the humanities. It's not just, uh, and the social sciences too. It's not just philosophy and theology. But when you get to philosophical and theological matters, that's even more true. So you have this tremendously rich body of literature that is trying to give form to an experience that is very hard to give form to, because right? it, it's got a kind of inexhaustible depth to it. And um, the, so the poets, are, the poets are good at this, and the philosophers, the best philosophers, you, you'll, you'll notice that the best philosophers are also really wonderfully uh, imaginative, creative writers. Sometimes they're very difficult, but they're, they've got a genius for, for writing, and theologians do. So if you think if you think about God that way, then you say, well, well, look, there's this tremendous uh, treasury of uh, discourse about that, that is being shaped by that is gravitationally pulled by this one word, God. And uh, people say to me. Uh, but a lot, of, a lot of philosophers, a lot of philosophers are very suspicious of religion because they think it's superstition and authoritarian, and a lot of it is. <laughs> it is, but um, and they say to me, "Well, why do you keep why do you keep uh, talking about God? Why do you why do you why do you choose this word? Why don't you say being or truth or something else? Why God?" And I say, "I didn't. I did not choose this word." It chose me. As, as soon as I opened my mouth, you know, I was surrounded by symbol, the, the symbols and the discourse of the world of religion. I grew up in a very Catholic uh, family, in a very Catholic neighborhood, in a very Catholic world of, of Irish and, and Italian uh, second, third generation immigrants. And the, the word, I was immersed in the word. I, and I have never been able to, and, and gave up trying a long time ago, get loose from it. And so for me, one way to think about what philosophy is, is, or theology, and I, I, am, I'm, I'm, I sort of do a philosophical theology or a theological philosophy. Um, is to think about, and this is the way I like to put it, what is going on in the name of God? Not so much what does God mean, the word, or what does the word God mean, which puts it a little too uh, intellectualistically, you know, a little too, it's too much focused on uh, meaning. When the word is more than a meaning, right? The word is a form of life. It's uh, there's, there's a whole uh, uh, stream of experience going on in that word. So the way Derrida does it, and, and I think it's really the best way to think about it, is to say, what is the event or events 
that are harbored in the name of God. What's going on in this name? Not what does it mean, what does it do? How can we, one, one philosopher puts it this way, he says, you should never ask, what does such and such a thing mean? You should ask, how can we perform it? How can we perform it? Well, that's the way I like to think about the name of God. It's, uh, there's, an, there's an enormous, huge performance at work in that name. For better or for worse, right? I mean, it's very violent. It's, it's a name in, in the name of God, we do the very worst things. You know? So the just to make clear... The more important the name, the more violent it can be. So just that I will make sure that I understand when you say the performance, you mean the performance of how we behave when we are using the name God or how what kind of performances we see in nature that is ha- that are happening? What is this uh, name inviting us to do? What's it calling upon us to do? What, how are we responding to it? The, name, the way Kierkegaard puts it, he says, the name of God is the name of a deed. It's, it's not something to think, it's something to do. Uh, it's, it's, it's in, it, there's, a, there's a man named, a 19th century philosopher named Feuerbach, who says that the name of God is a projection of uh, our, um, you know, we think of God as a father, we think of God as a man, we think of, we think of God as thunder. Uh, so we're projecting all the time. And I would say, well, that's one side of it. That's the subjective side of it. And that we are imagining God, that we have to imagine God in ways that makes sense to us. Uh, but the reason we're doing that is not, this, this is not our idea. We've been visited by something. Yeah? Something has landed on us. Something uh, has seized us. And we're trying to respond to it. Uh, and we, we respond in words, we respond in deeds, we respond in a form of life. So the thing that is inviting us, soliciting us, calling us in this name, that's the event. That's, it's, 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 it expects something of us. It's, it, uh, there's, a, there's a theologian named Paul Tillich who died about 50 years ago. We just a little while ago celebrated his 50th anniversary of his death. He says, religion is a matter of being seized by something of ultimate concern. He doesn't mention priests. He doesn't mention rabbis. He doesn't mention God. He doesn't mention candles. Being seized by a matter of ultimate concern. For better or for worse. Because for some people, you know, they make they make bad choices, right? They identify matters of ultimate concern with things that aren't, like like money or wealth or power or prestige or whatever. And so, to be to be wise, one must invest in in things that really are worthy of ultimate concern. But that's what religion is, I mean, that's, and he's not using the word. And he says, in religion, in the narrow sense. We use the name of God to name ultimate concern. But there might be other ways to worthily name matters of ultimate concern, like justice or compassion 
or beauty. So that an artist could be deeply religious in, in this sense of having something of ultimate concern. Well, that's the, that's, see, that's the way the word name of God works. It's not a doctrinal name. It's not a dogmatic name. It's not a, a narrowly religious name. It's any name. It's, it's a huge semantic power. It's an event. Wow. Thank you. Thank you for saying it like that. Um, another thing that, and, and, and this is like introduction for me for, for your book and for your project in this book. Um, another question that you bring is a question of should we ask the why questions? Right. Um, when I'm asking, when I'm when I'm thinking about why is like not what's happening in the world or what I feel toward things towards the events, as you you said, but it's about questions of um, why things are happening, and and you write. I'm going to quote from from page 28. As Heidegger said, the poet's point is not that the rose is unlike us, but exactly the opposite that we should take the rose as our model, what in the deepest part of our being we should be like the rose. We too should live without why, allowing life to blossom without weighting it down with our whys and wherefores. And then later um, in page um, 62, you speak so beautifully about um, Mother Teresa and did she had doubts? Yes, you said for sure. But she chose not to share the the, the whys, right? Um, her work was a work of God, which is what the rabbis mean when they speak of loving the Torah more than God. I loved it so much as someone who grew up in this culture. Um, c- can you share with us a little bit more, uh, elaborate and help us to understand that the gifts maybe of the wise, but also the burden, the waiting, as you mentioned, about the wise. And and yes, lead us, please, a little bit. The, well, we just talked about uh, the conditional and the unconditional. Uh, the, one way to think about something uh, of unconditional importance is to say that it is without why. Uh, you, you, the, the question why has to stop at some point. That is to say, there has to be something for the sake of which everything else is uh, ordered. There has to be something of ultimate concern. And if you ask why about that, Aristotle says that's a mark of a lack of education. <laughs> you know, if, if you say, if you say, uh, he was talking about wisdom, and he said, you, if you, he says, you make a decision between uh, science and wisdom. In science, we ask why, and, and well, we should. Um, but when you, when you get to wisdom, wisdom is, is the why. Wisdom is the ultimate uh, uh, concern, to, to be wise, not not smart, not intelligent, not tricky, wise. And so Aristotle says, well, if you ask a why about that, 
you are lacking in education, lacking in paideia. He says, you're just, you're just not cultivated. You, know, you, you don't understand. Um, so the, the mystics, the, the, uh, all the mystics that, that I know anything about, are, are more or less agreed about, about what's captured in that one little verse there, which uh, I use throughout the book about the rose. It says, the rose is without wine. It doesn't, doesn't ask any questions. And imagine a rose on the top of a mountain. Well, I guess if it's on top of a mountain, it wouldn't be blossoming. But, but imagine a, mo- a rose on a mountainside that no one has ever explored, blossoming unseen. And so the mystic Zangelo uh, Silesius uh, says, uh, life should be like that. Life should be this thing that whose glory is itself and is treasure for itself. Now, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't ask why and persistently and resolutely and incessantly ask why on one level. And that is the level of, of, of rational, scientific Research and investigation and study. So, so the, the the world of wise is of the utmost importance, and we all know that right now because we're depending upon scientists to get to the bottom of the coronavirus on the base, basis of ruthlessly rigorous scientific investigation, seeking to know why, 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 why. So. So there's a re- and and just to, just in terms of our own personal life, we need to we need to plan, we need to think, we need to examine uh, the implications for the future of uh, what we're doing for our children, for our families, for our, for our retirement. So we have to ask why all the time. But that what the mystic I think is saying is that there need to be these. Um, Causes, moments of silence, of, uh, of that interrupt the flow of ordinary life and of the whys and wherefores of ordinary life, which sort of uh, put put life in a certain suspense, and all of a sudden, and sometimes we don't, we don't even if you try to do this you probably can't. I mean. It probably happens more often because it it happens to you like an event, and you suddenly realize, and you can you see this now because we can't do all these things. The the profound sort of unconditional value of ordinary life, of the of the of things we take we take for granted, and so you say. So so we invest a. a Absolutely, unconditionally in in life, and someone says, "Why?" You say, "Well, that's a failure of education in ourselves." You 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 don't ask why when you found it. It's and I think that I think that it is ultimately life itself that um, is is without why in, in, in the fullness of. Uh, in the plenitude of life, 
which is why when, when we see life squandered or, or injured or taken away uh, recklessly, there's nothing worse than that. And there's, and there's no, there is in a sense no fixing it. You know, you often, often you'll see uh, uh, someone's been released from prison after 25 years of having been unjustly imprisoned. Those 25 years are gone. Irreparable damage. There's nothing you can do to fix that. You can try. You can offer remediation. You can offer compensation. But you've lost uh, it's something irreparable. Life, life has a kind of ultimate quality. Um, you know, you notice the way the word life is beginning to function the way the word God was when we were talking about 15 or 20 minutes ago. Yeah, I think that what I think is uh, uh, important is not any given discipline, uh, inquiry, discourse, word. What I think is, is important is a kind of a deep structure in our existence, um, which is, is very nicely captured by this by Tillich's expression, matters of ultimate concern. And that's what I think religion really is. And that's also what I think philosophy really is. And so I don't think, that's why I've never been able to keep philosophy and theology apart. Because for me, they just keep, they keep crashing into each other. They keep running into each other. Uh, because in, in, each, in every case, and it also happens in art, it happens in uh, social action, justice. You see these people who put their life at risk to help somebody. It's like, why are you doing that? And you say, because. Right? Because. Life. This is, this is a matter of unconditional import. The, the doctors uh, without borders, you know, these guys, they, they leave a comfortable practice uh, in the suburbs in, in America, and they go work in West Africa to prevent the Ebola crisis. Right now, these people working to, uh, to fight the coronavirus, they're putting their life they're putting, the way we put it is we say they're putting themselves in harm's way for the sake of life, for the sake of uh, uh, mercy, compassion. See, those are things where you hit rock bottom. There's that in which there is no witcher is the way they say it in English. You, you hit something. Uh, unconditional. And, um, so, so I want to go. Um, I, I want to to get your help. Um, do you think that when we ask the question, why, so what I hear are two things. I hear that there are different kinds or different two things, two kinds of why. There is a why about um, like science, right? Um, why things are happening and then how we can heal them, how we can make the world better, how we, this is how technology, modernity, everything are happening, um, art, et cetera, et cetera. But there, there is also another question of why, which is like be, go beyond maybe life. Should, maybe this will be the, the, the word. Maybe it goes beyond life or that, that, that try to capture the why 
of life. And this is a question that are, and, and here, I, I, here I'm not sure that I understand. Like, is it a question that should not be asked? Also, do you think that this question, do we have the choice to ask it or not? Or maybe it's just coming from a very deep part of us. Um, you know, there is, a, there is a, an, an incredible rabbi who told me, who, told, who spoke about that, and he said like that. He said, religious communities, he spoke about Jewish religious communities and very, um, very orthodox ones. So he said, we are genius in raising kids, but we have a huge educational problem of raising adults. <laughs> and he said, kids, you cannot leave them with answers. However, because the life is so terrified in a way and so complex or chaos that you need to give them a structure. However, if you continue to do it with adults, then you have a problem. So, so I, I wonder about that. I wonder if it's I, I wonder if you think that the why is a question that we are asking or it's a question that rises inside us. And also I wonder if the challenge is with a question or with what many times religious community try to do is to come also with answers. Uh, I have, a, I have a, a, a joke as an answer to the question, first of all. When I, when I was teaching uh, as a visiting professor one, at a university one time, and I had the philosophy department and the theology department on the same floor. So you went in the door, and then there was an arrow saying philosophy that way and theology that way. And underneath philosophy and theology, with philosophy, they had unanswerable questions. And then under the theology arrow, they had unquestionable answers. <laughs> <laughs> So, so life has lived in the middle of in the in, in between those two things. Um, what, well, again, let's use the conditional unconditional thing because I, I use it in the book. What ultimately makes life important to us is are these matters of unconditional concern. But as I said, you can make a serious mistakes when you're talking about matters of ultimate concern. And you might, and, and when you can, when you make something unworthy of ultimate concern. You, uh, you you're you'll be sorry in the long run, and and you're making you're diminishing your own your own life. Um, so so how do we know what's of uh, uh, an unconditional concern? By asking why, by disputing, by debating, by conversation, by discussion, by questions, questions, questions. So we we incessantly ask why. Because we're sort of circling around something that sits in the middle, smiling at us, uh, and we can't quite get there. You know, the secret sits in the middle and knows. We, what was that verse? You know, we we ask and ask and suppose and suppose, but the the secret sits in the middle and knows. Um, so it's so so the unconditional. There's no thing which is unconditional. It's it's some. Uh, it's some kind of, uh, it's not a particular entity. It's, uh, it's a quality in, in existence that we're constantly trying to figure out. And life is just an endless search to sort out the conditional from the unconditional. So we must always, always ask why, understanding that what 
is in, in the center or at the bottom or at the end, or above, or beyond, or deep down below, whichever figure of speech you want, there's something which is unconditionally important, something of unconditional worth. Uh, but the formulation of it is always going to be disposable. Deconstructable is Jacques Derrida's word. That's why um, uh, religion makes a very serious mistake. And, uh, it is a disservice to itself. And it's not just Catholics. It's not just Protestants. It's not just Jews or Muslims. It's everywhere you look in religion. There is a tendency to constrict, rigidify, formulate, freeze it. Well, someone once said uh, a, a rigorous religious doctrine is like a frozen waterfall. It, it ain't supposed to be frozen. You know? It's supposed to be flowing. It's supposed to be gushing. It's supposed to be moving. Um, and when you freeze it, it's like a, a freeze of a, a, a motion picture. You've stopped it. Now, there is some value to that you know, because you can stop and inspect it. But you need to insert it back into life because it's uh, life moves, life, life flows, and religion is all about life. And so you can't let it freeze. So does that mean nothing? And this is a wrap that postmodern and reconstructionists have to uh, deal with. Does that mean nothing is true? And you can just say anything, and anything goes. No, no, no. It just means there's no single formulation. There's no final formulation. When you go back to what, uh, to the scriptures or to the great books, you do want to know what what they mean, and you want to study rigorously what what they meant originally. Um, and you need to, and it's hard to get to when when people talk about uh, literal interpretation of the Bible. Um, for one thing, that is very hard to do, to come up with a, a literal interpretation of the Bible. It involves learning a very great deal about the ancient language, about the ancient world, about what, could, what was in their head when they said a thing like that. Who said it? What happened to the text? Is the text any good? Is the te has the text been edited and re-edited and redacted and redacted and redacted so we don't know what we've got? That is really, really hard work. And you should try to do it. But when you've got it, what you've got is, I, the way I like to put it, formative, but not normative. It, it, we, we do want to know what they meant, when they said it, who they were talking to, why, what they were presupposing. That's very, very important. But it's just the beginning. It's the first interpretation. It's not the final interpretation. What's the final interpretation? <laughs> we'll never know, right? It's not over it's yet. life, right? I mean, the, the final interpretation the is... Of life, the rush of life, the, the rush of history. The way I like to put it is, these texts don't have a meaning. They have a history. They have a history. They don't have an essence. They have a history. And what was important about them is that they were, at the moment, just the right thing to say. And they're still talking to us. They're still speaking to us. The event that they were addressing is still resonating. 
But we have to, it's our responsibility now to find our way to put it in, in the light of what we know now, in our times, in our challenges. We have to let those words reemerge, reinvent themselves. I That's love what you mean by deconstruction. Yeah, That's yeah. what deconstruction means. It does not mean to wreck something. It means to let it flow, let it live, let it speak. Listen to it. Listen to it. Don't make it say what you want it to say. Don't make it a mirror or a well and you look down the well and you see yourself. Let it speak to you. Be prepared to be instructed by it. But respond in our own way, in our own times, for our own uh, crises. There is a beautiful um, mid- midrash um, in the Jewish um, tradition that when Moses, it's written in the in in the Old Testament that Moses, you know, went to heaven to get um, the Torah, the Ten Commandments from the divine, and he and and Moses stayed there for forty days. Now, since he was there for forty days, the Jewish imagination starts asking the question: What was the hell he was doing there? Right? I mean, forty days. What do you do with the divine? And there is a beautiful midrash that says that when he went to heaven, he saw God um, with the Torah, with the letters of the Torah, but God decorated the letters. Um, he, he, he continued like an artist to put like paintings on the letters. And Moses asked God with a little bit of um, anger. He asked him, for so many hundred and thousand years you are writing the Torah, and now I came to get it and you still do it? Like you didn't finish yet? And he tells, and the answer is the divine to Moses is, one day, in around 1,000 years from then, which is when the Midrash was written, it's going to be another rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva, for each letter in the Torah, is do- going to create so many, so many ideas that I need to put his ideas inside the text, So I, but it's not written, so I need to decorate the text. <laughs> and then Moses said, can you please give me to watch him? And he said, yes, go back, which is interesting that he tells him, like, go back, not go forward, although historically go forward. And then Moses finds himself in the yeshiva, in the Institute of Rabbi Akiva. And the fascinating thing is that he doesn't understand anything, anything. <laughs> and then at one point, the students ask Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Akiva, this Jewish law that you just said, how do you know that? And he said, what does it mean? God gave it to Moses on Mount Sinai. And then Moses became relaxed. Now, I love that because in a way he lied. I mean, Moses doesn't know anything about that. (laughs) But in a way, it's exactly what you say. I think that he take a moment in the life of Moses, but he bring like God who put um, breath and spirit inside the body. We also need probably each day to take the text and to live it. And it's part of what our role in a way. But I wonder, Jack, if you can help us to understand, so what's the benefit of religious communities or what's the benefit of theology? Um, if religious will not be exist anymore, what we will lose that's a good question. Just, there are days when I ask myself, 
is religion more trouble than it's worth? Does it cause more grief than it leads? Uh, I, th I think that uh, there's a saying in the New Testament: there is no, uh, uh, there are no. It's actually, it's from, it's from. I think this, this goes back to the Jewish scriptures. There, are, there, there is no temple in the heavenly Jerusalem. There is no temple in the heavenly Jerusalem, because then God is all in all. So religion as a as a specific thing, where there are temples and synagogues and churches, is a plan B. You know, it's a it's a fallback uh, for the fact that uh, God is not all in all. It's it's something it's something we need in order to. It's a kind of focal object which allows us to 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 remember what is to be remembered. So, so religions function. Religions, what's going on in religion is not confined to religion. It's it's anywhere where anyone has seriousness of purpose and depth of spirit. That's that's what I think religion really is. Religion, in the narrow sense, is. Uh, uh, a memory aid. It's, it, you know, it's, a, it's a yellow stickle <laughs> to to keep our, our our mind and our heart open to the to the depth of the depth of things. Uh, so if we didn't have, ideally, you don't need it. There is no temple in the heavenly Jerusalem. But in practice, we do need it. And, and um, when you say and it was important what you said before, religious communities. Uh, because it's not simply books and doctrines and, 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 and theologies and philosophies. It's the communities that uh, are formed by in the communities in and of the spirit. It's the spirit is a great word. It's an important word in uh, both philosophy and theology because it means... Uh, it's a kind of unity of the individual and the whole. You know, the, when you have the spirit, you have the spirit of the community. Uh, the spirit isn't any one person. It isn't, isn't any one thing. It's, 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 it's what's within us all when we have it and when we're open to it. Um, so the com communities are the way the spirit can exist, the way it can come, come to be. And I... I uh, get invited to speak to a lot of progressive religious communities. The conservatives never invite me, but I get invited to to progressive ones. And uh, occasionally I've gone to uh, these things. I'll, I'll spend a weekend and I'll do a thing on Saturday and then Sunday morning there'll be some service. And occasionally I've met people at those uh, in those communities who are atheists. They are by the standards of the a local uh, priest, pastor, or rabbi, an atheist. And so I, I, I have an idea what they're doing there, but I always say, well, what are you doing here? And he says, it's community. It's this fellowship. It's this uh, concern we have for one another that I can't find anywhere else. Um, and that, that's the essence of it. That's the spirit. <laughs>
He's got the spirit. He doesn't believe in what theology calls God or philosophy calls God. But he believes in God in the sense that matters, I think, which is in in this particular case, the community, the fellowship, the sense of belonging to one another. So uh, that kind of thing, I mean, you can do it without religion, but it it's sort of natural habitat is religion. It's, uh, I, I much prefer the religious left to the secular left. I mean, I, I am... I have as long as, as for as long as I can remember since I got came of came of age intellectually been a man of the left. But I think the secular left is snotty, and uh, they love humanity as individual human beings that bother them. Um, whereas the religious left has got it because they, they understand that it's compassion. It's mercy, it's love. It's that thing you were talking about, Mother Teresa. It's, uh, I, I think they they understand it because it's uh, it's not just about ideas. It's about communities, it's about compassion and, and service and, and mercy, be, being together with one another compassionately and mercifully. So, re- religious communities, when they when they get it right, they they have it. They've, they've got it right. The problem with them is that they can get crazy. You know, they, get, they get fixed on doctrine and dogma. And ex- the, the, word, the way I like to put this is the word community goes hand in hand with the word excommunicate. You can't excommunicate if you don't have community. And when you start excommunicating, you destroy the community. But So the community is a paradox, right? It has to be. Uh, do you know, by the way, this is interesting. Do you know the, the, the edifying etymology of the word community is calm unum, coming together as one? It's not what it means. It's not its etymology. You know what the etymology is? Co muneris, the word for munition, uh, for arms, for shooting. That's the munus muneris. That's the root. It meant a fort. It meant surrounding yourself on every side, around, calm, fortifying, munus muneris, on every side, against the other guy, against the coming of the other. So communities are very dangerous, right? Because they can excommunicate. So you need a community that doesn't excommunicate. So it has to hold together. It has to hold together in peace, love. And with a kind of openness. If it's too open, it's not a community. Right? <laughs> so it's, it's a wonderful paradox. It's a beautiful paradox. It's, a, it's, a, it's one of the paradoxes that Derrida likes to explore. The, the paradox of community. Um, so, so, and I think that that's the strong point of religion. But it's also the danger of it. Thank you. Thank you. So in that paradigm that you're helping us in the past 50 minutes to build, I wonder um, if you can say or help us to think about the place of the mystics. Um, because the mystic, you know, um, if I go back to the 
father and mothers even of the desert, you know, that they maybe exemplify very beautifully what you said, because in a way they were alone, but also they gathered sometimes as a community. And, and, and now you really challenge, what does it mean exactly? But I wonder, since we have, you know, we have Protestants, we have Calvinists, we have Jewish, we have Orthodox, Reformed Jews, etc., etc., Shia, Sunnah, there is also the role of the mystics. And I wonder how you see the role of the mystics. And also one more thing, because we have the gift to have you here. What is the role of the um, mystic today? And who they are? Well, I, I think, uh, first of all, when you say mystic, let's, let's, make, let's clear it up a little bit. What, what you don't want to think about when you hear this word is sort of paranormal experiences and out-of-body experiences and levitations and strange uh, bizarre things like that. Uh, I like to talk about the mystical element, uh, which is a, a quality uh, of depth in, in life. Uh, there was a philosopher named Leibniz who uh, raised the question, why is there something rather than nothing? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I, I use it in class a lot. Because what the first thing you, you do when you hear that question, you start looking for a, a cause. You say, well, God, or uh, God made everything. Or the scientist will say, the Big Bang. And you say, no, 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 you're missing the point. No? It's, I, I, don't want, I'm not, I didn't ask you for the first cause of everything. I want to know, why is there anything? Period. Now, I, I think if you... Uh, meditate on that question and, and realize the sort of astonishing myst mysterious fact that there is something rather than not. That's the mystical. The way this the man named Wittgenstein put it, he said, that the world is, not what the world is, but that the world is, is the mystical. And, and then when you when you think like that, if you're religious in the sense that I mean it, and I think you mean it, you say that's a that's a gift. It's just a gift. It's without wise. If you can't get any wise behind that, wise or something or another, the ultimate answer is it's, it's without wise. It is it's it's a, it's a kind of extraordinary fact. The fact of all facts, the, the giftedness of, of being itself, and then of our our lives. In That's the mystical. That's what I think the mystical is. And I think all the religions and all the philosophers and all the scientists and all the poets. That's what they're chasing after. It's the mystical. Um, now, as to your question about today. Well, today that's um, that's easily lost that, that that sense of mystery because of the, the rush of technology and the busyness of the modern world, the density of urban populations, and life is busy, 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 busy. 
it's, 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 it's easy to lose it. Um, but it's there, and it's sort of always hovering there. I mean, it, it interrupts our personal life. When, when we lose someone close, like right now, when we've got this menace surrounding us, the, the giftedness of everything is is more palpable in, in times of crisis. Uh, it's, but it's always there. I think that I think that artists are constantly talking about it. Science, science, talking about it. science more, more and more and more these days. Science, the old picture we had of science is posing them to to the humanities. I think that's a mistake. I think the scientists are, have begun to. Discover things about the universe and the possibility of multiple universes. <laughs> this is just one universe. Uh, there, there, they've got it. I could get. I would. I don't think I'm going to live forever, but I would like to be reincarnated five or six times at least, because one of the, and one of those times when I come back, I would like to be a quantum physicist. And and. Figure out what those guys are talking about, because they're right there at the heart of very, very mysterious things. Um, so, I, I, I think the mystical sense of life is the, the depth of life. And when we were talking about the unconditional or what the name, the event that's going on in the name of God, I, I think it's this mystical sense of the, uh, the gift. The, the pure gift. See, Derrida has this great analysis of the, the pure gift. The, the pure gift has to be given without the intention of uh, being re uh, repaid. Right? I give you something, you say, oh, I thank you. Oh, I, I don't know how to thank you. And I say, I, you don't have to thank me. It's yours. Take it. I will always be in your debt. I don't want you to be in my debt. I want you to have this gift. Sure. Joy. Without reciprocation. Hmm. Well, the ultimate uh, character of reality is like that. Where did it come from? Who, who's, who or what is behind it? Stop asking the questions. Enjoy. I love that the same demand that we are that you are asking today from religious or uh, yeah from religions. In a way, we also need to ask from psychotherapy. Um, in a way, not to over um, investigate why we do what we do, but to give us to be. Um, and before before we we need to end soon, but I must ask you one more question, please. At the end of the book, you speak about um, about death, and um, the death is not a punishment. The punishment or the the sin, it was um, in when we go back to 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 the Garden of Eden, was a try to touch and to live forever, which we also try to do by technology and whatever. And I think today, in these days of Corona, we see how complex it is. Um, but I want to, so I want you to, if you can elaborate for us a little bit more about that. But I want to focus on, I want to push a little bit more. There is a beautiful midrash that says that on the sixth day, um, when God created the world, God created humanity, and then God said, 
והנה טוב מאוד. And it is very good. Because each day God say, it's good, it's good, it's good. But when it comes to humanity, they say, it's very good. And the rabbis, you know, who in, 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 the, in the Talmud, the ancient rabbis, they said, good that you were born. Very good that you have um, the day of death. And this is very good. So I want you, if you can help us to understand that, but I want to say one more thing. To speak about death is not only a subject, but it also really depends, in my opinion, about your age and your place in life. Because when I learned about death when I was in my 20s at the university, it was very different than when I spoke about death when I served in the military community. Um, and my w- role was to identify the dead bodies of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And it's, I think it's very, very different when you ask it as an elder, when people who are older asking this question. And I wonder if you can help us to understand a little bit more about the role of death and also about the role of elders. Because one of the p- things that I'm really personally... Um, challenge that I feel that in our times we put the elders outside we call them professor emeritus or we put them in special houses and in a way we are losing something that in my Hasidic community we were living with the elders for me to be pretty is was to look on the 70-80 years old on their face which speaking who they are And this is what prettiness for me until today. So, and I feel that we are losing this role in our modern life. So I wonder if you can elaborate this place of death and also the place of the elders who maybe can help us to hold this question. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's a kind of a big one. <laughs> um, yeah, I have... several thoughts about that one, one is uh, as you said when you go back and look at the story of Genesis uh, death was not a punishment the punishment was that they wanted to live forever they wanted to eat of the tree of life and they said then they want to be like us you know, like, because they were still speaking in the plural Halloween and um, it was St. Augustine and the Christian doctrine of original sin and all that that got that story in recast that story in the way that I think distorts it. But death was, death is a, is a defining, death biologically is how life is passed on. Right? As I like to joke, you know, it's, sometimes it's the only way you can get some people to retire. You know? <laughs> to, you know, I heard a fellow say one time, the church makes some of its greatest progress preaching funerals. Uh, because in some way, this is the only way you can get some people to move on, make room for the young. So it's a way that life is, we pass the torch of life. It's, it's, it's completely natural. It's not, nobody's being punished. It's, 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 the, it's the way things work. And so wisdom is the understanding that and, and being happy to pass it. Well, I don't know if I'm happy, but willing to pass, pass the torch to the, to the next generation. Um, one way to think about it is that an image I use sometimes is uh, death makes life precious. It defines it. So you could sort of assume the opposite. One way to prove things in philosophy is to assume the opposite. So assume that you didn't die. And 
then you discover how life becomes you you could for example after if that were the case never again be brave because there would be nothing to risk uh, you, you that in fact uh, underlies the qualities that we attach to, to life that is like the darkness around a bright star it's it it, it, it helps to illuminate uh, life and, and show the preciousness of life. Life is precious, like the old joke, compared to what? <laughs> compared to death. And so life's uh, urgency and life's meaning and beauty and depth are, are defined. They finis. Finis and death. It's defined by, by death. And if it weren't defined, it would be indefinite. It would be, it would actually be empty. You would never. Simone de Beauvoir wrote a, uh, a novel when she was a young woman called Two Les Hommes Sans Mortel. All men are mortal. And it's about somebody who takes an, an immortality potion. And it works. And how their life is completely undermined by it. They can't, they can't, they can't get attached to anybody because they're going to die and they're not. You know, the person they're attached to is going to die and they're not. You know, so, so things start to become indifferent to them. Things don't have any quality and don't have any meaning. So, so to, to think about death properly is to, is to try, even from a biological point of view, to see, to see how it is the root of things. It's the, it's the, 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 there's a wisdom in death. So, you don't, so what you want to concern yourself with is that people don't die. Too soon, or too, or badly, or or in, unjustly. Um, but but death itself is no, nobody's being punished because we die. Then Augustine really got that wrong. Um, and then, as I, you know, I have thought things like this for a long time. And I thought, as I got older, I, I used to think, I bet I'll change my mind when I get old. <laughs> I do want to live forever, and um, it's not tr- uh, it's, that didn't happen. I became more firmly convinced than ever uh, that that's the case. That 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 death structures our life in, in a constructive way and makes it precious. And older people sh- should come to know that they should come to realize that, and they should be able to communicate that. The, the problem with older people, my experience with a lot of older people, is that they're, they're, they're living part of a vacation. You know, they want to get to a retirement community and they want to play golf and play cards and, and have a garden and do all these things. <laughs> Whereas, you know, that's one of the reasons I don't want to live in a retirement community. I don't want to be, be distracted with all that stuff. I, want to, I don't want to play cards. I want to keep thinking and writing and, and talking to people like you. And, and, and you know, I, I don't want Amused. I don't want to get stay amused. I want to keep thinking. Um, so out, you're right. Elders are. They don't. Uh, it's not that kind of world anymore. You know, you, you, it's not these Hasidic communities or the old Italian communities or the old European way of life where, where you, you, the elders didn't go to. Re- 
continuous living communities, they stayed with their families and the families took care of them. And, and then they had things to say. So the children would talk to them. We don't live like that anymore. We don't. Uh, so, the, so elders have lost... Uh, it's not just that people don't listen to elders. The elders don't have anything to say. They're, they're too, too busy playing cards in, in, in retirement communities. Um, but they should, because as you, I mean, I will be 80 in uh, six months. I just turned, I'm, I'm actuarially 80. I just turned past 79 and a half. Um, and uh, all my, you know, there was a time in my life when everybody was getting married. And then there was a time when they were all having kids. And then when they were all having grandkids. Well, now we're all turning 80. You know, everybody in my graduated class in high school, they're all turning 80. And uh, with varying degrees of wisdom, I would say, <laughs> wisdom should come with should come with age. Um, as you get older, you do what what philosophers are always talking about starts to become palpable. The way you said when you were young, yeah, it's it's far more palpable. I and mean, I I don't think long term now. I don't think. Someone says to me, well, it's going to take five or ten years for this. I think <laughs> that's kind of a long time for me, five or ten years. So you don't, you don't think of long range like that. Uh, you, you do have a sense of finitude. And, uh, uh, I, I mean, for me, it just means that everything is all the more precious. And, uh, you want to die well the way you live well. It's all the same thing. It's all the same. It's all the same. Part of the same story. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, Jack. And thank you for writing the book Hoping Against Hope's Confession of a Postmodern Pilgrim. Thank you. Thank you for your very uh, interesting questions and for the chance to, uh, to chat. <laughs>